I think I just didn't have a plan almost intentionally. And similar to, you know, oh, like computer science seems good. I'll try that until I have a reason not to. I think this entire story that brought me into web development and open source was just following that spark and not worrying too much about where it ended up. That's Fred Schott, founder of Astro, a JavaScript-based static site generator that offers a brand new way of building websites. And this is the README Podcast, a GitHub podcast that takes a peek behind the curtain at some of the most impactful open source projects and the developers who make them happen. I'm B. Dougie, a.k.a. Brian Douglas. And I'm Nerd Neha, a.k.a. Neha Batra. Every episode, Neha and I invite a maintainer or open source developer into our studio to explore the impact their work is making on the world around them. In this episode, we speak with Fred, who is based in Oakland and has accomplished a remarkable amount as a programmer since he started his career under a decade ago. After working with large companies like Box and Google, Fred decided to take the plunge to start his own company, Astro, based on the success he was finding with his open source projects. His love for programming came early and he worked hard during his 20s to get where he is now. In this conversation, we spoke about his introduction to open source, his path to Astro, and the role luck plays in success. But first, as always, what was Fred's first experience with a computer? Oh man, that's a great, great question. I used to make uh, flash cartoons with a friend. So I had a friend in middle school who uh, was a really talented artist. And I just thought, okay, he's going to do that. I guess I'll do the programming of them. So I started playing around some really awful code, but, you know, making little games and characters move around. That was, I think, my first. Did you learn ActionScript then? Yeah, ActionScript 2.0, representing that. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. The code was all over the place, you know, copy-pasted. But it worked. Yeah, it worked as much as a Flash game works. Which, Neha, I don't even know if, do you have background in Flash or ActionScript from back in the day? No, I've only created one or two things that are like interactive and that was on Visual Studio. I was like more on the nerd side. So I was looking into nanotechnology and how to like simulate what it could look like for nanobots to be talking to each other. And that was in Visual Studio. So. Oh my God, that is so impressive. <laughs> You're making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds way more impressive than it was. It was like similar to you in a way that like, I guess I'm trying to relate, but you know, you find a thing that you want to do and you're just like, all right, how do I get there? Right. So for me, it was, all right, I guess I'm figuring out. And I was like printing out this code and like highlighting for loops and if loops and trying to intuit what that meant and how I can modify the existing stuff. But for you, it sounded like you were interested in a game and making a thing. And then you just had to figure out how to get there. Right. Yeah. I think I like playing them and I had a little curiosity of how to build them. I mean, this is, you know, I'm middle school now, so I'd, it's like Newgrounds and E-Bombs World. I think I was totally in that, you know, just teenage boy on the internet phase. But definitely I was like, oh, these games are cool. How do they build these? And, and I think just kind of went from there. Do you remember the first game that you made? No, no. I mean, they were like, <laughs> I don't even know if you could call them games. Like, oh, look, I made something go up and then down again. And you click it and it does it, you know. It was a long process because it wasn't, you know, any real focused learning. It was just kind of like, oh, I wonder if I could do that or try something new. So lots of experiments. I think the games kind of came later. I feel like that totally counts. Yeah. <laughs> and time-wise, because I, I was into playing Flash games and I had friends that wrote some action scripts. We might be pretty close in age, I don't know, rolling the dice, but probably early 2000s, probably around that time when yep, yep. Flash was really big before Steve Jobs told us we can't use Flash anymore. <laughs> before Steve Jobs killed my childhood, yeah, yeah. I remember. <laughs> 
Gaming is a common entryway into programming for many young people. It's often the first time someone realizes they can change something in the real world through code. That can be a real hook, and in some ways it was for Fred, but he still wasn't totally sure it's what he wanted to pursue professionally. I went to Tufts University and didn't know what I wanted to do, knew I liked computers, kind of fell into it. And yeah, just like I kept looking for a reason not to do it, and it just kept enjoying it and felt like I was learning and just kind of took it from there. So definitely always played around with side stuff while I was there and worked on little projects, little like browser extension that tells you when your friends are in the library and just random things. And then kind of stopped doing my schoolwork as much <laughs> um, and got a great internship and just realized like, oh, like what a weird industry where my grades don't matter. I guess these side projects that are coming up in every interview are actually the worthwhile thing. So I don't know, my parents weren't very proud of my grades in the last year, but I was lucky enough to get a great job that brought me out to California. And yeah, I don't know if that's a lesson for the kids out there to don't do your homework. I guess that's like the worst <laughs> thing I can just say, do your homework. But I don't know, I found a balance that really worked. Did tech play a role in like growing up? Did your parents use it? Did you have any siblings that were like programming as well or? No, I really didn't. I mean, I was definitely lucky enough to have a computer in my home, which I think just helped with basic literacy of technology. So like loved The Sims when I was growing up. And that was a good one. You know, like the idea of like there's some cheat in The Oh, the Sims. one where you get that unlimited money? Yes. That one? Ah. I was just talking with a friend about that. It's like that you're actually opening up the developer console and typing in a secret word. Even that little thing is like, what's a developer console? Do you know? Definitely, I think a lot of stuff like that, I was very lucky to have in my childhood that just, if you do is things that like make you feel good and successful and, and productive, then there was definitely a lot of that to, to set me up for success. Yeah, like knowing how to code, not even knowing how to code, knowing the awareness of code, it's like almost having like a cheat code, like yeah. going to school and going through life. I have a twin brother. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, but at the time of MySpace, I remember we were in a band and I decided to leave the band because I didn't really want to play music anymore. But they leveraged MySpace to get a bunch of votes for some local radio show. They didn't have to like write code for this, but because they were just so active in the MySpace era and HTML and CSS and they had a great page, they were able to game the system to open up for Bon Jovi. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So what? Yeah. And it was funny is like me and my brother, we didn't grow up listening to Bon Jovi. I didn't know who Bon Jovi was. Like I could hum the songs kind of, but not really. <laughs> uh, but like it just completely changed my worldview when I went to go see Bon Jovi. Oh my uh, God. In the front. I think your brother is the first growth hacker, first recorded growth hacker of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, on record, I guess, at this point. <laughs> right. Although Fred wasn't actively thinking he wanted to study computer science, I felt like there had to be something in between him playing some games and then in college thinking, I'm gonna create a browser extension. Yeah, that's a great point. There was one other thing that's kind of set between the two. Most people might not even remember the Second Life. Did either of you play Second Life? Yep. Oh, I'm familiar, yeah. There was a scripting language in there. It's the same idea, like, how can I create fun things in this world? You know, click button and push a person's avatar up into the sky. I played around with that again, just, you know, no idea what I was doing, but ended up creating a few things and then Again, this is the weirdness of Second Life. This will probably be like illegal today by like child protection laws. But someone reached out. I was like, hey, I like what you're building. And, you know, I'll sell this in my Second Life store. And I was just like, oh, he probably thinks I'm like a 30-year-old guy. I'm just going to lean into this and like sell this. And he's going to pay me money to make things. And like, I say that now. It sounds so uncomfortable. Like, why is this kid making money online by selling things to? I don't know. Maybe he was a kid, too. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, there was definitely just a lot of playing around, I think. 
maybe an interest in poking around at things that I was playing with. Yeah. So playing flash games and trying to build one myself and playing Second Life and trying to build something myself. There was a lot of that. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of like, well, I know that I can do things with this. And so if I just play around enough, I might like hit the gold mine of like something exciting that I can make, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and weirdly, I think I enjoy refactoring more than most. I don't know if most people would say that. Maybe they would, but something about like, this code is messy. Can I clean it up? Can I get a real kind of zen? It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Just kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. these things were a mess and now they're clean. Like this feels right. I, I've always found that at least in my career, a nice sense of satisfaction after just doing kind of meaningless Clean up. Yeah, and I, I feel like there's a great segue to talk about that and what you're doing today. But I want to find out real quick about these Chrome extensions and how that got you your first job and also what that job was. Yeah, so I was very lucky. I didn't know how to do an internship search at all. I started way too late. And I was just very lucky that a friend at college, basically I was just riding his coattails. He got a really cool job out in California and had felt bad because he had spent that winter, had found some place in Boston to work out of. Uh, local healthcare company with a tech department of a couple people. And he was feeling bad about having to like, you know, how do I say no to this person? It's a small firm. They're not going to be able to find someone. And I was just like, you know what? I need a job. You could just, you know, kind of put in a good word on your way out and maybe it'll help loosen the blow. And just through that, I like totally stumbled into my first job, which was not impressive, but it was enough, right? To put on the resume. And then when I did do like a more kind of, okay, it's junior year. This is the summer internship that matters. It gets you your job after college. I at least been told that. So I took that seriously and was lucky enough to have that on my resume. So I ended up at Box, which is, you know, the Dropbox competitor. I got a summer internship there and that's what brought me out to California. I met my wife that summer, very uh, transformative year that summer. And I got invited back. Excellent. So you took a permanent role at Box after that first summer. How long did you um, spend at Box? I was there for almost two years. And that was really, again, there's a a theme of stumbling into these things that I guess is prevalent, but they really were like, all right, so the team we got for you is the front end team. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And just ended up working on the web app by chance. You know, I think is really kind of defined. I haven't left at least since then. Yeah, that was, I mean, a great team. That was such a great time to join a company or at least that size I really connected with. Just big enough that there's people to learn from. They've done these great hiring and there's really smart people there, but also not so big that everything is super structured and you're going to be put in a box. And that was very lucky that just kind of by being there and being active and I ended up just really working with this great team that then ended up being the team that brought Node.js to box. So I ended up getting really connected with, and this is like Node.js, like 0.6. This is like 0.4 early days. This was bringing that into Node when there was this weird, small little South Bay area. Enterprises were starting to take Node very seriously. There was a lot of evangelism happening at eBay, I want to say, and PayPal through that. And maybe even Yahoo had like the biggest web framework in Node at the time, which is kind of funny to look back on. All of a sudden, this technology was being taken very seriously by big companies. And I, just by right place, right time, was able to kind of be a part of those conversations and uh, lean into it. Being in the right place at the right time seemed to be a trend for Fred. Luck certainly plays a role in success, but it's also important to keep an eye out for opportunities that could be transformative. So talking about transformative, I think right when I joined, Box had hired Nicholas Sakis, who you might know as he basically created ESLint and is still the lead maintainer of that, has had a long history at, um, I think, Yahoo. I hate that I don't know this. I think Yahoo, which, you know, at the time, one of the best renowned JavaScript teams. And so just by chance was able to work under him for this first year or two while at Box. I'm sure he would say I bugged him all the time, but I was just like, oh, like this person... Open source seems fun. They clearly have this really 
incredible approach to JavaScript that isn't about what cool new features, but like really seems very thoughtful about how would this impact at scale a large team and was very lucky to work under him. And so at that moment, Node.js was new, but still not taken seriously. And I feel like JavaScript still has a bad rap in some circles as being this like toy language. But at that moment, at that company, there was a ton of pushback of like, but you want to run this on the server? That makes no sense. There was a ton of pushback on that. So at the moment, there was a backend team at Box that really wanted front-end developers to learn Scala and thought that was going to be this magic solution. So like all of a sudden, there was this warring factions, the future of the front-end, like thrown into a pretty heated philosophical battle for what would front-end development become. And at the same time, you know, front-end developers, even as an industry, going from full front-end to all of a sudden React, I think, was just being talked about seriously. And the idea even of doing SSR, I think, is still a couple of years away. So it was really the early idea of a front-end developer starting to touch back-end server code. And again, that was an early, you know, before there was SSR, before there was Next.js, got to play around with what that meant for a company the size of Box and build some of that early, it wasn't back-end code, but it was the server that the user would talk to that would help template and present the page. So what has now become SSR, we were, you know, early days of what that would look like in Node for a company of Box's size. As you were learning that and as you were creeping closer and closer to like the server, what was piquing your curiosity the most at that point? I was just really like hungry, like whatever I'm doing here, I'm just going to like do it full. Looking back, would call it very cocky. <laughs> like I think my first meeting with my manager, it's like, all right, I'm looking for a promotion. He's like, you are six <laughs> months out of college. Sit down, <laughs> wait your turn. I was, I think, naively cocky. But I think I was just really hungry. To, I don't know. It was around that time that I really found open source. And so I tell the story a lot, you know, when people ask, how did you get into open source? Like, what does it mean to you? I... Okay, so like Fred is being told, wait your turn by a manager, rightfully so. But at the same time, through Nicholas, who had been working on ESLIN, I started to get exposed to more of the open source community. And again, just lucky coincidence, we were using the package request, which is still a super well-used package, even though it's been deprecated for years. At the time, it was already the second or third most used package on NPM. And we were using it. I think we've ran into a bug with it because it was still so young made a contribution back to it, it got accepted, realized they didn't have a linter. I was one of those people who like goes into an open source project and is like, hey, I've linted everything. I hope that's okay. And oh, I know your type. I know, I know. I was just so <laughs> eager to help, and it was the only way I know. And luckily, Michael was like, oh, cool, this is great, thank you, instead of shutting me down, which I try to keep in mind now all the time. But all of a sudden, I just started contributing more and more and realizing that like, oh my God, I'm shipping code to the third most popular package on NPM. Like if X percent of Fortune 500s in the world are using NPM, there's a good chance that X percent of them are using this package. And in my day job, I'm being told like, yeah, it's not really for you yet. And then I go home, open my laptop and I'm pushing code to major companies and having a real say and ownership over that code. And, you know, getting pushed up to a contributor role. I was like one of three people who could actually publish the package. Michael Rogers was just super encouraging. And that was an awesome experience that really sparked that early, I think, the joy I still have for open source. Meeting the right people and knowing the impact they might have on your work can be a game changer. Fred saw an opportunity with Michael Rogers as a mentor who could help him with what he was interested in. That was probably one of the most impactful things that happened, which was just totally a coincidence that Michael was such an encouraging and I don't even think I really realized at the time, like he was one of the early people who helped push Node through. And I can't remember because it's a specific claim of like built the first version of NPM. I don't know, or maybe ran it on his servers. You might know better than I do. Like very early days of Node and just by chance got to work with him. So yeah, again, a lot of luck involved, but 
So it was a really great experience. So you're six months in, you're getting PRs merged in the request. What did that do to your career at that point? Like what happened as a result of this? So I think one of the biggest things I learned from that experience was just how much communication online and written communication specifically, how valuable that is. And again, you know, I was the person who submitted the I lented your whole project for you with no actual input from you. I was never, you know, aggressive, but I look back on some of those early issues and early conversations and like my ego is definitely getting involved way more than it should. So Michael was always very good. And I think that community was very good just because it was so big and important. I wasn't really able to just kind of like, not that I was throwing a tantrum, but throw a tantrum. You know, it's enough going on there where Michael, I think, stepped in at the right time to encourage people who he clearly, I think, looking back, saw were learning and gave a real guiding touch versus it would be so easy to just kind of learn a lesson of like, oh, like the way to do open source is to be super dominating in all the conversations and whatever you say, say goes. It's so much easier that way. And luckily, I just by learning from example from him, you know, there was a lot of guidance. And I think he enjoyed the mentorship part of it. I know there's something really interesting about this duality. You mentioned that you were hungry and you also mentioned that you were cocky. And I feel like it almost feels like in some ways two sides of the same coin where there must be like a correlation or potentially even a causation, right? If someone is telling you you can't have that promotion and you're interested in an opportunity somewhere else in order to grow and and to get that opportunity, like for you, what's that value of being cocky? Yeah, and I don't think of myself, maybe brazen is a better word. I just like, I was very ready to put myself out there and volunteer or just reach out to people, which I was definitely just lucky and privileged enough to be able to go home and open up my laptop and live at a time where I was just kind of working a lot. It's tough because I don't know if I would recommend to people, you know, work super hard at that point in your life. And, you know, you can't get back your 20s. But at the same time, I got so much out of it. I'm still torn on where my advice would lie today on that. But I think leaning in that kind of classic idea of it was just what I would do and not do anything 10%. And similarly, you know, playing a Flash game to making one and playing with Second Life to making something. I think that curiosity of working on something but then really wanting to understand it the why behind it and the deeper reasoning behind it all, I think is really what pushed a lot of that early conversation. So using requests to actually trying to build requests and push PRs to it. It's something I see now that we have a community and after the project we're working on most now, we just got funding and I'm trying to find the right way to, you know, it shouldn't just be because you feel comfortable and have the resources to work on your free time. That sets up a bad incentive for just like who can actually contribute to open source. And if I believe it's such a hack on your career, which it is, like, why are we only letting people who have those means and resources. So now that we have funding for the first time, I'm really excited about how we can use that to, how can we break down that barrier, at least to not just people who have the means and the time and are in their 20s. You know, how can we let more people in? Totally. And I think something that's really relatable about what you're saying is that, because I feel this way a lot too, is I feel like the best opportunities I've ever had are the ones that I've fallen into. But there is something to be said about following that spark and just thinking through like your two and three safety nets and being like, all right, that's enough. Like, let me try and do something. Your story to me, what resonates with me is the fact that I can see an example of someone following that. Okay. I think this might be, I might be onto something that's like really interesting. I'd like to stick around and see what happens. I think that for a lot of people, seeing those examples really helps them make decisions and understand that where they are right now may not necessarily lead to where they need to go. And in retrospect, you can always connect the dots. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm hard on myself. I say I stumbled, but really, I think I just didn't have a plan almost intentionally. And so similar to, you know, oh, like computer science seems good. I'll try that until I have a reason not to. I think this entire story that brought me into web development and open source was just 
following that spark and not worrying too much about where it ended up. Fred started his professional journey at Box, and now he started his own company. What were the steps in between those? I left Box two years into that journey, so I was just kind of like, okay, it's been a while, I'm still not getting promoted again, rightfully so, but I was like, startups seem cool. Again, I'm just a hungry 20-year-old, and I want to go and try that out. So I actually ended up joining a, a small startup that didn't really go anywhere. And then I had actually a really hard interview experience after that, and the one company that accepted me was Google. So I like kind of, it, it's just amazing, like... That's not, not a normal uh, response that people would say. <laughs> I know, oh my God, like small companies, medium-sized, like no one, no one accepted me. And just, I think, the luck of the draw. I think there was a chance maybe two interviewers gave me the same question, and I didn't tell anyone. I don't know. It was one of those things. I've had that before, like, too. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it was just, I don't know. I, I was lucky to have gotten one yes and just kind of immediately said, you know, yeah, sounds great. And had a bit more say at that point. So I knew that I wanted to work in the San Francisco office. I was living in San Francisco at the time and didn't want to do that commute. I had done that before. And the Chrome team was working out of San Francisco. So I got in with Polymer, which is the Web Components project that Google pushed for a while and I think has now become Lit. Or Lit HTML is the new name of that. And met some great people on that again, like got to work on open source now full time, which was just such an experience. And especially seeing how a company at, at Google scale does open source was pretty eye opening. And through that, got to basically see the ESM spec as it was being made. So that was the, you know, import and export of JavaScript and how you can run these module imports inside of the browser instead of nodes require statement, which is how they did module loading on the server side. So there was this real push to finally have a native module system in JavaScript built into the language that was being worked on and kind of finalized and was in that weird period between, okay, it's been accepted in the standard, but like no browsers are supporting it yet. Tools are starting to support it. Developers are starting to write it, even though it's being compiled away by Webpack. All of a sudden, this technology was starting to get in front of people and Polymer was really trying to be a force to push that out there. So that was really my connection to the ESM technology, which then... Pika and Snowpack and all these other projects really tried to push into the world even further. I have a follow-up question to that. So I'm curious, uh, I'm familiar with Polymer. I've never paid too much attention to that project other than seeing if it works with Netlify, my previous employer, which a lot of that stuff did eventually. Now you're working on a project which Pika is the name of the company. You've got Snowpack, you've got Skypack. It's, we've bounced around so much. The quick from there to here today is Pika was essentially this open source umbrella that I had originally started some things with that name at Google, and then I left Google and got a much more traditional front-end role at Ripple, which is a cryptocurrency company. So again, startups, cryptocurrency, I considered myself such a little, little hotshot, but I wanted to try that out, and there was an opportunity to lead that team technically that I was very excited about. That was when I picked Pika back up as it was more known in the world. So from internal project to an open source project, and there was no Google to worry about or kind of corporate to worry about. It was just like, classic open source and it could kind of exist on its own. So then that became this umbrella of just experiments around the CSM technology. We made a package creator. So like Webpack for your packages, we made a web app installer that became what is Snowpack. We created a CDN, which is what is now known as Skypack. There was a failed code editor for a while that ran in your browser, which, you know, is somewhat like what Stackblitz and GitHub code spaces are doing today, but built by one person in a couple of months, you can imagine it was, it was a rough experience. And that brought us to end of last year, which was when we realized we could bring all of this together into Astro. So really all of those threads have kind of aligned into what Astro is today, which is a really cool exploration of the technology, but actually trying to solve 
a user story around how they build websites and trying to challenge the status quo on what a website even means today. Astro is transforming the way people think about and build websites. Fred was ambitious throughout the thinking and the initial building of Astro and has been pleasantly surprised with the fruits of his labor. It's been pretty mind-blowing, even to us, as the team of people building it. Early on, we're like, we're going to keep it small. We're going to, like, not talk about this too much while we build it. Maybe we'll target people who are trying to build static sites with a Lemon D or Hugo. Just own this little niche and see where it goes from there. And then, like, week one, people are like, I just rewrote my next site. And this is, like, 40 times faster. What did you do? I'm using this for everything. And all of a sudden, like, like no, we don't want, like, being pushed into this story, which... You know, we are excited that people are excited about using this instead of Next, but for a four-month-old project versus a five-year-old project, it's been pretty humbling and, and just eye-opening to see. What we do differently that no one else is doing today is we are challenging the idea of what a website is, where Next or Next or Gatsby, a lot of these Jamstack players see a website as a JavaScript application. And the popularity of React and people saying, well, what if I just built my whole site with this and then well, I don't even need HTML, it's just all JavaScript, has led the web down this path where you are building JavaScript applications. So a request comes in, it spins up some JavaScript on your server that runs your JavaScript application that creates HTML out of that and then sends that down to the user. You then need to do a bunch of other stuff, but that's the basic story of a Next or a Next and what they're doing behind the scenes. We are taking an alternative approach, which is to treat the website not as a JavaScript application, but as a collection of HTML pages. Astro has risen in popularity since it was released earlier this year, and it's a big player in the sea of static site generators. So what is the process with Astro? What makes it special? So your user request comes in, they visit your site on the browser. Instead of spinning up a JavaScript app that's going to render your website, we're basically pulling out a static build, which is the HTML of your page that has different dynamic content sprinkled in. So the nice thing about it next is that, okay, Really easy. I built my site in JavaScript. It's all going to run as JavaScript. The whole thing is dynamic. Um, you don't really have to think about, like, when I click this button, how does it know to, like, run all that code? Because you're basically just shipping the whole JavaScript application, at least for that page, down to the user. So that's really powerful, but heavy, as it kind of sounds, right? You're rendering the site, but then you have to ship the site also so that they can run it locally. And because it's all one big app, you can't really pull things apart and optimize as strongly. So where Astro comes in is you're building an HTML page and then you're just sprinkling in the JavaScript where you need it. So that buy button or the header or the image carousel, each of them is injected on the page almost as its own little island. And that gives you interactivity where you need it, but everything else remains static and lightweight. So the performance is just on another level where we're not saying we're going to be the best JavaScript application. We're going to actually totally flip that script and it's a page with interactive elements on it versus an entire interactive application, which on a mobile connection or a mobile phone, you're paying a real cost to hydrate an entire thing versus much smaller pieces, only the things you need. So I'm curious about, obviously there's been so much traction, right, over the past few months around this. And one of the things that really resonates with people is that it's incredibly performant, right? And so it's just a lot easier to do and almost challenges the way that we work today. How is that doing with first-time contributors? And what are you observing about the demographics of people who are starting to use this? Yeah, so this is, and we're very lucky. I mean, even Snowpack and Skypack being open source projects, I feel like I'm still figuring out, even with the experience of going back to that request package and I first open source 10 years ago, that must have been. I still feel like I'm figuring out. And 
we made plenty of mistakes, even with Snowpack, our most recent project, and not investing enough in our community and building up a set of contributors. I really feel like we could have done more there. And I wrote a post recently kind of going into some of the lessons learned. So the great part about that is now building on Astro, I feel like now this isn't the first project at the scale of how can we handle all these users coming in and how can we build out a team of contributors, not just one or two of us so that we don't get burnt out so that you know we don't get that overwhelmed sense of, oh God, every issue has to be dealt with by me personally at night or on the weekends. I definitely felt a lot of that in some of the past projects. A project gets popular, almost takes you by surprise if you're not ready. So Astro has been great. We've been building a really strong community of not just developers. I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about is our Discord has a ton of people who maybe have come in because they're contributing to documentation or they're just writing about their experience learning Astro as their first thing they've ever learned. There's a ton of knowledge sharing going on even within our community, which is just really cool to see. And I think speaks to some of the, you know, you don't need to build a JavaScript app, you're building a web page and a website. So it's HTML, it's CSS. We really lean into those in a way that no one else is doing. So if you're coming from a WordPress or maybe even just, you know, your first bootcamp of fundamentals, you know, it's not like, okay, great. The way to build a site is you need to learn GraphQL. It's much more forgiving and much more of a welcoming learning curve into the site where you're bringing in JavaScript when you need it. Speaking of that learning curve, we started this conversation with Fred learning to do Flash with ActionScript. And now he mentions that people's first interaction with the web can be Astro. I wondered what sort of feeling that invoked in him, knowing that someone's introduction to building on the web could be something he created. So there's two cynical takes about what we're doing. The first one is, is Fred just trying to do web components again? <laughs> like, is he just trying to make Polymer happen? Like, it's not going to happen. That cynical take number one, which is just kind of a joke that doesn't have too much. I don't know, there's a little bit of similarities. But the second one I'm much more proud of, which is, are you just recreating PHP? Which is when I first started web development is the first language I used. It was around that time where it was so popular. And again, not knowing what I'm doing, you're just kind of like, okay, great. Here's my HTML. I'm going to now put a PHP tag in my code. And it's going to just like make a database call in the middle of my page and go load something from a database. And now I'm like, okay, go back to HTML so I can template this thing that comes out. Okay, back to PHP. And it was really forgiving to someone learning because you just don't really care about what should go anywhere. You're just like, great, I can switch and flip around and try all these things. And the learning best practices comes later. Astro, I think, has that feeling for me in a way that I'm really proud of, where you have your templating HTML, and you can also make database calls somewhere else in the page that you can then reference. So all within this page, you have the loading of data, you have the templating of the data, in a way where it's not like, okay, I need to go create the right exports or the right functions or the right hookup of these different things. It's all really connected and batteries included in a way that reminds me of how I learned in a way that makes me really happy. So it sounds like some of this was really intentional. What was the starting intention or like your North Star that you were going for that resulted in a bunch of these decisions? Yeah, so we were really, I mean, Snowpack, I think, was one of our biggest projects up to that point, and we loved it. But we also realized that, you know, it's a build tool. And at the end of the day, it's just a faster webpack. It has some really cool technical ideas. I don't mean to sell it short or any of the work we did there. But at the end of the day, there was excitement. But like, cool, I'm loading something faster or I'm developing faster. But it didn't feel like we moved the needle on the developer experience as much as I wanted. And at the same time, Veet came out, which is Evan Yu of the Vue team, an incredible engineer. He built a around the same time an exact same idea, basically, that he went after which is just funny how those things work around the same time we're playing around with the same ideas. But he, again, talking about the importance of a really strong community, 
from day one, they had the Vue community, they had contributors, they had people who already were empowered. So whereas we were trying to build that up with Snowpack and maybe not investing in it to the degree we should, Evan and that community just took off and ran with it and did such a good job. So around the end of last year, we were looking at what we were doing and, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. There's this real sense of like, could we build something on top of this now that it exists? Where we still built Astro on top of Snowpack, but only recently have moved over to V, where realizing we could start to actually push the developer experience and the user experience at the same time. And, you know, I think that's that kind of DNA in the project of, it's not just another way to do things. There's a theory behind it of just like, how can we actually change something really fundamental? If Snowpack was trying to get rid of bundling, how can we take another stab like that where Astro can try to challenge the status quo of heavy JavaScript applications as the only way to build websites in a modern way? It's clear that Astro wants to break new boundaries and change paradigms around some of the most widely used tools in web building. Fred made certain key decisions in order to make this project more contribution friendly. What were some of the key things that Fred and his team did at the start to grow their contributor community? Yeah, there's definitely a few things that we learned from that past experience. This sounds silly, but honestly, the biggest thing is using Discord. They don't pay me. This is just a plug because I love what it is. It started as a, as a chat application for gamers. And wouldn't you know it, the things you need to moderate 12-year-old gamers is actually really good for moderating an open source community. I've been a part of open source projects that ran Slacks, but the difference between something that was designed for people trying to have fun and something that was designed for people trying to do work, really, the more you use them, the more you just can't get away from that fact. So choosing Discord as our platform was awesome. It injected a lot of fun with, you know, just the silly kind of randomness of a chat room and of Discord, but also you can really customize Discord and you do it with programming. So there's that almost sense of, you know, what is the Flash game equivalent for Discord? It's, oh, I wish a bot could do this or I wish I could automate this. And just in our community, it's like, oh, that's great. Like, we would love that if you can do it. And all of a sudden, it's someone else who maybe has experience with the Discord API or who's just excited. And your open source community, all of a sudden, you're not in a position of, I mean, you're, you're the person running the project, but like, I don't know how Discord bots work. I'm going to learn from you. Like, all of a sudden, it kind of flips the dynamic there. And a lot of our contributors started by just around the edges of Astro, getting involved and having that moment of like, oh, I've contributed with something I know how to do, or I've personally felt, or this seems fun. We have this awesome support bot that was just built for a custom need we have that I'm like pushing the person who built it. Like, you should like repackage this and sell this bot. Like other communities would love this. All of a sudden, there's just this really cool energy to these different projects within our community. So it's taken on a life of its own. And that was definitely intentional, but it's hard to back into. It's something that I'm so happy we started with and started with that intentionality because it's really hard to add after the fact. So I've got so many connections that I want to bring up, but real quick, I want to also mention that Evan Yu was episode two of this podcast and specifically talked about Veet. And in that conversation, Snowpack came up and we sort of unearthed some of the comparisons that are commonly being made. So I think it's absolutely fascinating that y'all are leveraging Veet inside of Astro or in conjunction with it. But also early in the pandemic, there was a conference that y'all run, which was the ES Next Conf. And that was run inside of a Discord and it was like one yes. of the first interactions I had with the conference that was Discord heavy. So like you had like all the interactions in the chat and sort of back channels or I would call it hallway track in conferences in person. Yeah. And I felt like it was a great experience because all the folks I couldn't see in San Francisco because we all had the lockdown and not know what was going on. We all hung out in the Discord, like random channels 
And it was also my first real exposure to Discord outside of like gaming. So you had an impact to me because I run a Discord now. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. It was from that experience that uh, I was like, wow, this is something that we should probably pay attention to. And shout out to Discord. They have a really good open source community engagement opportunity where if you have an open source project, they give you lots of Discord or free nitros or whatever they call those things. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I actually forgot that connection even for us. Yeah, that was my first experience with Discord as well. Or maybe I joined one or two before that. But yeah, that was like early COVID of just like, all right, I've been invited to like three webinars that we're trying to replace conferences. This feels really boring. Let's just do like a bunch of pre-recorded talks and stream them. And then this Discord will just be where we all hang out. Totally thrown together. Drew Powers was the person who worked with me on that. I think we tried to do a global conference. So we're like, oh, like now that it's online, we can do anytime. So let's stream just the same day as content over a second or third time. <laughs> it's like, oh no, we didn't think through. We're going to be up. Like we tried to do it a week long. We're going to be up all night. We did not get a lot of sleep that week, but yeah, Discord. I mean, just so great for developer communities. It's the best. I love the idea of different open source projects building upon one another instead of seeing each other as competitors. Fred started the Astro journey using his tool which is Snowpack. I wanted to know more about how Fred decided to go with Veet for Astro, technically a competitor of Snowpack, and how they work together. Veet is this thing where they can kind of like unify a lot of tooling. So instead of React having their bundler and Svelte having their bundler and Vue having their bundler and all of them having their own build tools and build setups, like Veet is this really cool opportunity to consolidate everyone onto the same build tool. So you can just add the React plugin or the Vue plugin and they all get to share the same thing. Astro is weirdly doing that for the next level up in the stack, which is because we work with any frameworks, we support React, Vue, and Svelte, and all the others. Because of that, you can basically think of the framework as the UI, but Astro is now taking on some of the routing, for example. And it's easy because we're a static site, but we have these ambitions to be doing SSR and that server-side rendering and handling more dynamic routes. So... Today, if you're building a React app, it's like, all right, well, I'm going to use React Router or something else, and it's a React solution to routing. And Svelte would say they'd have theirs, and Vue has theirs. Astro would say, no, routing is the responsibility of this web framework, and the web framework is totally agnostic. So it's mostly HTML and CSS, and you use JavaScript when you need it. So maybe there'd be some sort of JavaScript solution, maybe not. But it wouldn't be a React solution because we want to build something that would work for everybody. So all of a sudden, you're starting to pull things that over the last 10 years we've added to the frameworks. And we're pulling those back out again. And we're going to see if that's as good a developer experience. But now everyone coming together on one, what does the Astro routing solution look like that any framework can use? So in the same way, we're unifying and consolidating a lot of work that we hope will be an even better experience and not one-offs for every framework, but built into this lower level of how you build a site that anyone can leverage. (laughs) It's like if you give a mouse a cookie kind of thing, right? Where it's like, well, if you want to build a web firm, first you're going to have to choose a framework. And if you're going to choose a framework, you're going to have to make sure it has X, Y, Z. And then you're going to have to pick your, you know, so. Yeah, I really can't imagine going through a boot camp right now. I have so much respect for the people who do where it's like, okay, to build your first website. And it's exactly that list of things. Like just to see the page, right? The hello world will involve React. And okay, it's connected to Babel and it's connected to Webpack. And it's one of those things where we've, looked at the problem of complexity over the last five, 10 years. And the way we've dealt with it is we've wrapped it in layers of abstraction. So, okay, create React app is just going to have your Webpack handled for you so you don't need to worry about it and you can get started quickly. The problem with that is then you look at what's actually inside of create React app and it's like 2,000 packages are powering it. 
I think it's huge and you want to go and customize it. It's like, well, hold on. You can't customize it. It's like, wait, why? It's like, because yeah, you have to look at the documentation on how you can customize it for that version. Or right. Something. It's such a, it, and I, I mean this, it's not a house of cards in that it's built poorly, but it's a complexity house of cards where they actually can't let you customize anything without their say so, because you might break one of their things they built. That's where I see a lot of the industry has gone, which is, again, you can get started quickly, but it's at the expense of, okay, I just saw an error somewhere in my project. I have to go spelunking into my node modules folder, which is 2000 packages large. Oh God, where am I? What's going on? I thought web development was supposed to be fun. Like you lose a lot of that. I almost see like a connection to the middle schooler who's like, well, why can't it just do this, right? It's actually one of the things that I love the most. When I talk to someone who's like brand new to an area that I have more experience in, I always listen to like their naive questions because it always gives you the source of, oh, it should be that way. Like, why can't I just build a web form, right? And why can't it yeah. just post? And that's it. And they're like, well, this is the reason. And then like, I always stop myself when I'm explaining this like 14 paragraph long, the reason <laughs> right. of why the way things are. And I'm like, huh, wait, can we build it so that it is that simple? Obviously it's, we need thousands of open source contributors who are trying to find different solutions to do that. Yeah. It's so easy to miss when you're so deep in it, you don't realize how absurd. I think like once a year, someone will post a like, not even a takedown. It's just, I'm just going to describe an experience I had in Word so you can see this. And like the blog post is like, I tried to install a package. It didn't work. And here's the weird error I got. I Googled the error. It told me to do this. I got a different error. And the experience is just like, I tried to start my web development experience and 10 things cascaded to make the experience just mortifying, which any one of those as a web developer who's maybe experienced it before or just who kind of lives in it, you're kind of go like, oh, well, of course that's the error that shows up when you do so-and-so and the way to fix it is this and that. But like when you take a step back, that's exactly that. It's really, there's a lot of rough edges that we ignore because there's so much to build on top of. Yeah, it sounds like Astro is really in touch with what the experience is for beginners. What's their connection to early stage developers and how do you keep that fresh? That's a really good question, which I don't think I've actually thought about. I mean, part of it is just when you see someone post about a frustrating experience, it's really easy to say, oh, well, they just didn't X, Y, Z. And it's like, there's that question below. It's like, why didn't they X, Y, Z? Like, why didn't they know? There's this concept in, if you're ever doing like a retro, like something went wrong at a company or even something went right, but like you're trying to get to the bottom of how can we make sure this never happens again? There's this concept of asking the five whys, which is like, okay, I pushed some code that took the site down. It would be so easy to just be like, Fred, you're fired. Like, great, we solved the problem. No more Fred, no more problem. But then there's like, the, okay, well, why did you push code that broke the site? It's like, well, I was in a hurry. And it's like, okay, well, why were you in a hurry? It's like, well, we had this feature deadline. And then you can start to dig in and realize like, well, that thing wasn't tested. And like, okay, well, why were you not testing this code? It's like, oh, well, we are allowed to skip tests if we're in a rush. All of a sudden you realize it wasn't Fred's fault. It was a process problem. Or at least something in a chain of process things might have caused this broken issue. And then you start to get a lot of empathy for individuals in that story and I don't know. I, I love that idea because it's almost always a process problem more than it is a human problem. So I think there are different parallels of that in anything, which is in open source or in the tooling problem. It's like, if I'm frustrated, why am I frustrated? And if I see a lot of people frustrated, why are they frustrated? And 
So you just start to see those patterns a lot more clearly when you start to think in that way. And I, I try really intentionally to bring that type of thinking into working on tools and working on different projects. I think it's also like, why did we spend so much time learning how to build software, if not to make it so that the process or the system can handle the things that are hard for humans to do, right? So Yeah. And that was one thing, I mean, going back to Nicholas Sakis and just how lucky I was to work with them when I was at such a formative early part of my career. He's really someone who believes like, engineering and programming as a craft is a human exercise. And 10% of what we do is actually about the code and 90% is how we communicate it. How do we get buy-in? How do we communicate in a way that doesn't alienate or push people away? Like being a jerk won't get you anywhere. At a time where I was probably my most cocky and rough, it was such a formative experience of like, that's what matters most. And you know, the code, it's, you know, you see that in PRs and in different projects where so much work goes into the planning and then the review and the actual coding is a much smaller part of that, um, at least in my experience. So I've been very lucky to learn that lesson early. It's something else I try and strive for. So kind of piggybacking off of that, and we were kind of touching at this on the fringes before, what advice do you have for young developers who are looking into open source? I definitely think open source is just like the, there's nothing else like it that I know of where you can just jump into something and people are looking for help and you can provide help and different projects approach how much they're able to hold your hand or welcome you in in different ways. Some projects have no community. Some projects have really well-developed start here, go there, do this. That's something I'm most excited about building out in Astro, but even just being welcoming is kind of the first part of that journey. So find a project that's welcoming, that's you know looking for help, that is as much as you can are people who you want to learn from. And, you know, you don't have to go and like, please don't just add a linter and then submit that PR and then walk away. Like a lot of the times just starting with a conversation, we have a channel in our discord, which is like start here for contributors. And it's just like post, have a conversation, tell us what you're interested in. If there's some part of this that you see and just want to work on or are interested in learning more, we will totally help you out as much as we can. Again, that comes with the assumption that it is someone who has time on their free time, they don't have kids they need to go and drop off or pick up or other things in their life. So there's still problems with that. But as much as we can, we're trying to be at least trying to pay back the kindness that I was shown in my early career. So yeah, I mean, just if you can find a project with people who care about this sort of thing, and I don't know the right way to find it. I'm, this isn't a promotion for Astro. There are plenty of other projects doing this. But if you can find one with a great team that you'd like to learn from, it's it can be one of the best experiences, or at least it was for me personally. Excellent. So I probably could talk to you for like hours. We definitely need to catch up, Fred. But I just wanted to thank you for your time and sharing your trajectory into eventually Astro, Snowpack, Skypack, touching down at Google and Box. Absolutely fascinating. I got so many gems out of this conversation. I guaranteed the listeners did as well. All right on. Thank you. No, this is a great platform and I love that you all are highlighting open source. It means so much. So thank you. Yeah, I feel like what was so cool to hear your story is that no matter where we were talking about within your trajectory, you can still hear the passion and the excitement, curiosity, and kind of challenging the norms. And so thank you for sharing that journey and helping inspire the next generation. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> that was fun. Oh my God, you guys are great interviewers. That's one of the best. I love that format. I don't think I've gotten that full like walk down memory road in a while. Let's do part two. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> it was great to speak with Fred Schott and have him on the Rebe podcast. To learn more about Fred and his work, visit astro.build. 
I'm Brian Douglas, a.k.a. B. Dougie. And I'm Neha Batra, a.k.a. Nerd Neha. The Read Me podcast is a GitHub podcast that dives into the challenges our guests faced and how they overcame those hurdles. In sharing these stories, we hope to provide a spotlight on what you don't always see in the lines of code and what it took to build the technology that inspires us all. And it's great spending time with you. The Readme podcast is part of the Readme project at GitHub, a space that amplifies the voices of the developer community, the maintainers, leaders, and the teams whose contributions move the world forward every day. Visit github.com slash readme to learn more. Our theme music has been produced on GitHub by Dan Gorelick with title cycles, additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. The Review Podcast is produced by SoundMade Public for GitHub. Please subscribe, share, and follow on Twitter for updates on this podcast and all things GitHub. Thanks for listening.